Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, good evening. <clears throat> Tonight I, which will be my last talk here, want to give you as much as I can, but hopefully not overload you. Um, <clears throat> and the title of, of this talk, actually, since I don't need this, doesn't make any difference, does it? What? It does? Oh, it does. Oh, okay. Right. Thank you. Oh, now I can hear it. Okay, now it's working. All right. Um, so the um, title of, of the talk I'm, I'm calling um, Transforming Suffering into Happiness. <clears throat> A good alchemical process. <clears throat> and that's, that's actually what we're, we're doing here. And I wanted to um, uh, look at this from the the moment-to-moment mindfulness. What you're what you're doing, most of you doing, practicing uh, mindfulness in each moment, uh, is really doing just that. It's it's transforming suffering into happiness as you. No, and I mentioned it here before, the, that second foundation of mindfulness, Vedna, um, which says that every moment has a feeling tone of either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Um, the reason why that is so crucial in, um, in the Buddhist teachings is that if you don't meet that moment wisely, chances are you will be um, developing more suffering. If you meet it wisely, you will be moving into more well-being and happiness. Because in the moment that your uh, experience is pleasant, most of the time unwise response which most people have in our lives is grasping oh i like that i want more of that how do i keep it here oh no don't go away and this is the second noble truth truth grasping 
in the moment where it's unpleasant, the typical response is aversion. I don't want this. Push this away. I don't, I don't need it. This is, uh, and either pushing it away with aversion or with aggression. <clears throat> Again, sowing the seeds of more suffering. And in the moment where it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral, the usual response is just not noticing it at all, not paying attention and um, just spacing out, uh, which is one way of uh, talking about uh, non-presence or non, uh, non or delusion. Um, so those are the three roots of suffering grasping or attachment, aversion or hatred, and uh, delusion, confusion. Um, the wise response, which is what we're practicing here, when the moment is pleasant, rather than grasping at it, to really be here for it, and I mentioned this in an earlier talk, it seems to me that it can be healthy to be here for the pleasant experience. You don't want to push it away with aversion. Oh no, I'm going to get attached to it, so I better not let myself um, experience it. That's just more aversion. But in the pleasant moment, you can appreciate it without grasping at it. Non-greed. In the unpleasant moment, instead of uh, pushing it away, there can be an opening, an embracing, a, a, a welcoming, a friendliness with the moment, non-hatred or non-aversion. And in the moment where it's neither pleasant or unpleasant and there's a, a neutrality but there's a presence to it, we are clear in seeing what's here. Non-delusion, non-confusion. Those are the three roots of happiness. Non-greed, which is another way of saying uh, the capacity to let go or even more fully expressed as generosity of heart. Non-hatred or non-aversion or loving kindness, a friendliness with the moment. And non-delusion or um, wisdom, clarity. Those are the seeds of well-being and happiness. So it's right there in every single moment we have a choice how to respond. And I want to talk both on the meditative level that in each moment we do have this choice and also the wider implications. So I'll go through each of these. <clears throat> greed or non-greed. Grasping or um, generosity and letting go. And the Buddha said this is really the key to uh, to well-being and happiness. It's really, it's moving from 
the second noble truth of attachment of grasping to the third truth of truly uh, letting go. And in our culture, it's, it's, so, it's so hard to uh, go against the stream, so to speak, because everything is conspiring to us um, to hold on. It, it, this, is, this was happening when the Buddha was teaching 25, 2600 years ago, but it's even more compelling now when there are forces, very powerful, very um, sophisticated forces that have their interest in fanning your desire and in thinking that just a little bit more and you will be happy. Somebody asked uh, um, uh, John D. Rockefeller when he was the richest man in the world, how much, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money will be enough? And he said, just a little more. Can you imagine living in that reality? The richest man in the world, and it's still not enough. But besides the acquiring on the material level, there's also on the um, um, grasping for our attention, the, the next thing that will do it. Uh, in in uh, the, the teachings, the, the Buddha talks about uh, this capacity to let go as nekama, renunciation. And he says, this is a source of great, great happiness. Renunciation doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, but when you think about it, it is really putting down the burden of what you don't need and discerning what you really need from what you want. There's no end to what we want, but to see, oh, I don't need more than, than this. Ah, what a freedom in that. <clears throat> There's a magazine, maybe some of you are familiar with, Real Simple Magazine. Have you ever seen Real Simple Magazine? It's about 250 pages, mostly ads saying, this is going to simplify your life. <laughs> if you get this, oh, you'll be happy. One after another. It's a very popular magazine because people are craving simplicity. But, um, kind of a subversive simplicity. This is, um, this is from um, a, an economist, Victor Lebeau, uh, just at the start after the war of um, the development of the real consumer society. He says, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. That's why you are considered a consumer unit by many people. Everything that follows every click of your phone, it's saying, oh, this will, 
tantalize. And then in contrast, we have the Buddhist notion of moderation, matanutta. And this is a P.A. Paiutu writing, a, a great um, economist and scholar. He says, uh, matanutta is an awareness of that optimum point where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to more satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. So he's not saying, oh no, you shouldn't enjoy life, but to know when enough is enough. This is a very, this takes mindfulness. Oh, hmm, that dessert was really good. Do I need a second, a third? Is that gonna make it even better? At some point you get indigestion. So it's just noticing and appreciating what's here and then being able to let go when that's enough. And this is true not only of, of our stuff, but of our busy lives. And I wanted to share with you a, an article, I, an essay I love from my favorite writer, whose name is Mark Morford. Um, just so you know what we're up against. <clears throat> this is, uh, the essay is called, Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. I didn't read this, did I? No. Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management. Because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and yes, terrifying idea really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are by and large utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation for most is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous. Avoid aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. 
In any 48-hour period in 2010, says an article I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. I read the study. And by the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed-circuit TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. This is what we're up against. And here you've come to the ultimate spaciousness. And you probably have had moments of, oh, this moment is enough. Somebody was saying that in one of the interviews today. Wow, it's so amazing. This moment is really quite enough. But it takes so much to, so much practice. Even if you've been practicing when you're out in the world, it takes so much clarity and wisdom to not get pulled and seduced by the next thing that is just coming like hooks with delicious bait on it. to let go of the wanting. What allows us to let go? It's seeing the pain of holding on. That is a big help as you've seen it. Have you seen it as you're practicing? Every time there's wanting, instead of getting frustrated that there's more wanting in the mind, just each time see it and notice the difference between the moment before the wanting was here and then the wanting. You can feel it and you're exploring the human experience. So you might find that a very um, powerful inquiry, but sometimes you can see it and you still are caught in it. 
and I want to um, honor and um, really respect the fact that we can see things clearly and still our hearts are caught. So this takes tremendous patience because it takes a while for the body and the heart sometimes to catch up to the mind. But every time you can feel the pain and really embrace and appreciate that you are learning more and more deeply, then you can, um, you can more and more embody it. And the Buddha said to reflect on this every day that, um, that this body will grow old, that we will become sick, we can't hold on to our health, that this body will die, that everything and everyone near and dear to us will be separated from us. He said, think, just really get that. And it's a practice to take in every day, as well as the fact that you are the owner of your karma. This is a, a beautiful, powerful poem. Maybe you've heard it before. I, I love this. It's called The Dakini Speaks by Jennifer Wellwood. She says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly ha haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings, but please let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her, pro her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion is exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. The wild dance of no hope. <clears throat> when you let go of, not to say that you don't have a vision and maybe are open to things going well and even an inspiring uh, vision, but uh, as uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca said, um, you... Um, you give up, when you give up hope, you are giving up fear because hope is always accompanied by fear. If there's an attachment, ooh, I hope it works out this way. And when you give, uh, dance the wild dance of no hope, you're saying, okay, I can be with whatever is here. This is a profound letting go. 
And the fuller expression of this non-greed, of this letting go, is generosity. Because then there's not a, a lack and you're coming from a place of fullness. And this is a tremendous source of well-being and happiness. The first paramita, generosity. And it's simply just expressing our caring. Whatever we have to offer is, is the currency of our love and our caring. <clears throat> Think of, of maybe something that somebody gave you that's in your house. For me, there's a, a cup, it's part of a, my, a wedding uh, gift from many years ago from some friends of mine. And every time I take that, that cup on my bathroom, you know, I, hi, hi, Roger. You know, can you, can you rem- re- think of somebody or something that you use? And every time you use it, it's like, oh, you feel that connection. Isn't that amazing that our generosity connects us with others? And our generosity particularly can be expressed in terms of our caring and in really being there for others and really being there in a way that uh, is a contribution to others. The the, um, father of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, uh, wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, and he says, Authentic happiness, as he did a lot of research and study, true authentic happiness comes from identifying your own gifts and sharing them with others. Not so much what can I get, but what can I give? That's where there's a kind of opening and expansion of heart. And this is something that we as Dharma practitioners should keep in mind also that our practice isn't just for ourselves, but for everybody. This is, uh, let me see if I can find a quote. Uh, From Nyoshal Kempo. We are not practicing for ourselves alone since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditation on our perfectly pure motivation. The very hardest essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others. Let's call bodhicitta. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, the premier Buddhist scholar, in a beautiful essay called A Challenge to Buddhists. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. 
attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. <clears throat> in each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potentials in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. And I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical change for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels, including the lowest, harshest, and most degrading levels, not in mere contemplation, but in effective relief-granting action illuminated by its own world-transcending goal. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. So you're not practicing just for yourselves alone. And particularly if you can see the rippling effect of your practice, it, it up-levels it tremendously and wanting to make a difference in this world. And every moment that you're mindful and it is a pleasant moment and you're not grasping, but you can let go and allow, you are cultivating that spirit non-greed or generosity of heart, non-hatred, non-aversion. As the Buddha says, hatred does not cease by hatred. Hatred ceases by love alone. This is an ancient and eternal law. Every moment that's unpleasant and you don't recoil and push away, but can allow and even meet with a friendliness and embrace. This is a moment of non-aversion, of, of a loving kindness, of a kind heart. And it operates on many levels. And the Besides the moment of mindfulness, the, the, the heart connection can have a number of different uh, directions. The first one, and probably the, the most uh, important to start with as it starts in the metta practice, is kindness towards ourself, is compassion towards ourself, is love towards ourself. This is essential because until we are ready to include ourselves in the love we would have for everyone else, we're cut off 
and there's something that is not complete or whole. So if you find, and I gave a talk earlier that a number of people were here on the, the comparing mind and the judging mind. If you find that you are hard on yourself, this is a real, uh, this is your frontier of practice. How to somehow include and, and, um, and welcome the whole package of who you are, metta for yourself. And um, and there are many ways to do it. Uh, one way that I'll I'll give uh, I want to share. I sometimes share this. I share it in the in the course I teach the joy course is a a loving kindness practice that I came upon doing um, metta practice for uh, for about a six week period at, at IMS a number of years ago. And I was doing, I was spending a week doing metta on myself and it was, it was okay, but it wasn't really, you know, knock your socks off metta. I was just, you know, I was friendly with myself. And then, uh, then it occurred to me, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. And I thought, this would be so much easier if I could just see what they see. And then I asked myself, well, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me so much? And then I hit upon this practice, which was a real turning point in my own practice. So I'll offer it to you right now. If you're open to it, just uh, close your eyes for a moment and uh, bring someone to mind who you have a, a real warm connection. It can be a pet, a child, anyone from even somebody from your past if, if nobody comes right now. And uh, just bring them into your consciousness. Imagine them happy that you picked them and smiling back at you. And uh, feel that warm connection between you. Isn't it amazing we can have that sweet, unique combination between us and one other person. And as you're feeling that flow, see if you can imagine looking from their perspective through their eyes at their friend who they really love hanging out with and see who they see when they're with their friend why they enjoy you so much. Notice all the different qualities about you that touch them. Might be your playfulness or your kindness or caring or other qualities. Just look at it all. Drink yourself in as one poet says. And see, is that person, their friend, worthy of kindness? Probably. It's probably all they wish for you. And you might even send it from their perspective. May you really see everything good inside and 
be kind to yourself. And now let your consciousness float back inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected to those qualities. And just send yourself some thoughts of well-wishing. May you or may I see all the goodness inside and share my love well. Okay, you can open your eyes. So if you, if you had all touched something that your friend sees, it's just a matter of more and more um, connecting with that. If it's not so strong now, it's right in there. I mean, you're, you're the last one to see it. Everybody else sees it, but we're judging ourselves from the... From the um, Mm, skewed perspective. Albert Einstein has this, this phrase, we live in an optical delusion of consciousness and we, we can't really see from our perspective the true reality. So that's intrapersonal. Then there's interpersonal kindness and love, which you just maybe touched on from seeing your friend's perspective. And uh, this is such an amazing part of being human. This is from Lewis Thomas, who wrote um, Lives of a Cell, was a really wise, um, deep uh, biologist. He says, I maintain that despite the moment's evidence against the claim that we are born and grow up with a fondness for each other. And we have genes for that. We can be talked out of it for the genetic message is like a distant music and some of us are hard of hearing. Societies are noisy affairs, drowning out the sounds of ourselves and our connection. Hard of hearing, we go to war. Stone deaf, we make thermonuclear missiles. Nonetheless, the music is there waiting for more listeners. Sometimes we can't see who we are, but somebody believes in us and we can start feeling or sensing what they see. And that is an extraordinary gift. And sometimes we just have karma with others and for no explicable reason, we just kind of can awaken that love in each other. And that love doesn't belong to anyone. This is from Mayor Baba. He says, love has to spring spontaneously from within. It is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together, but while love cannot be forced upon anyone, it can be awakened through love itself. 
Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it, catch it from those who have it. True love is unconquerable and irresistible. It goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone it touches. So we can awaken this in each other. That's quite extraordinary. And to, when you're feeling some good energy, benevolent energy, kind energy coming your way, to really take it in as a practice. And one, one practice that I like is just seeing that person as an agent of life, letting you know that you're loved. Once you start tuning into it, it's, it's everywhere. And you just, you can't hold it all, so what else can you do but just send it back? And I think sometimes if, if we can see ourselves as meta-recycling machines, just kind of taking it in, sending it out. So to really honor that connection that we can have with, with each other. And there's another kind of love that I want to mention, uh, and that is um, our love of the truth. That something got you here. There's something that you couldn't ignore. And it's very, very deep, even stronger than all the doubts and fears and judgments and whatever else might be in your history, something really deep called you, not just to the forest refuge, but called you to the Dharma. That's an amazing gift that we've all been fortunate enough to receive. And sometimes we don't think of it as a, a juicy kind of heart quality, but I think it's a very useful, valuable thing to do. We can get so um, the Buddha Dharma can sometimes be emphasizing the wisdom factor and not as much the the heart element, although it's quite in there. Certainly, the Buddha spoke of of metta. Uh, but I'll share with you a story that I want to, you know, just invite you to point to in your own life. This is when I was first getting into, into practice and I was, um, I'd been uh, sitting on my own for some time in New York. This is in like 1974 and 75. And uh, I loved the practice, but it was getting a little dry. Just there was no sitting group in New York at the time that I knew of. And, um, uh, Joseph told me that Ramdas was going to be coming to uh, was going to be doing a class in New York, and I'd mentioned here that be here now you know, changed my life. And I thought, wow, okay, I want to I want to be in this very small by invitation only class. And I went to speak to Ramdas to see if it would be appropriate. And uh, but it's like it was a big Hindu trip, bhakti trip, right? So um, we're. We're talking and um, 
seeing if it works. And he knew that I was really into Buddha Dharma and uh, and Vipassana practice. And um, he said, "Well, I want to ask you something. Um, um, what do you what do you feel about Jesus? Uh, do you love Jesus?" And I said. Well, I like Jesus. He said, now, do you love Jesus? And I said, I don't know if I love Jesus, but I really am inspired by his teachings. And, but, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't raised in, in that tradition. And I like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, okay, um, well... Uh, how about Krishna? You know, it's a bhakti thing, and they were doing a lot of chanting Hare Krishna and Ram, uh, Sri Ram J Ram and stuff like that. He said, "Do you love Krishna?" And I said, "Well, I like Krishna. <laughs> Just the kind of embodiment of pa- of passion and celebration, and but I don't know if I I love him." Um, like maybe you, maybe I should. And, and he said, um, okay, well, what about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, Ramdas, I was raised uh, in, uh, as, as a Jew, uh, and my image of God, maybe it was from a, you know, kid's, Bible coloring book or whatever. Uh, But I had this image of God as a very big guy with a beard and a book and a writing utensil uh, saying, uh, writing implement, basically saying you're going to have a good day and you're going to have a lousy day. And it more put the fear of God in me than the love of God. So I don't know. I don't know what my relationship with God is. And, but I will say that when I hear the word God, I translate it into my mind as the Dharma, which for me is like the, the mystery, the perfection of everything. And, um, and I can resonate with that. And then he said, oh, okay. And then he said, do you love the Dharma? And that, I said, oh, absolutely. He said, you sure? I said, absolutely. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? (laughs) I, I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. Tell the Dharma you love it. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? And he said, just say, I love you, Dharma. He said, I'll say it with you. Go ahead, you say it. And I felt like a complete idiot. But, okay. So I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said the same. And we went back and forth about three or four times until one time I really felt it. I love you, Dharma. And tears started coming down my cheeks. 
At which point he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. (laughs) I ended up being with him for that that year in that class. But that moment was probably as important as anything I got from the rest of the year. And it's something that I think we all should reflect on from time to time, how much we love the Dharma, whether you call it the truth or the mystery or the unconditioned or whatever you call it, there's something very deep in you that loves this stuff, that's in love with the Dharma. Why else would you put yourself through this? And to really acknowledge and celebrate and feel the juice of that, this is, this gives life to the practice instead of it just being, oh, another moment that I'm supposed to be here for. Oh, this is a moment of my life. It's a sacred moment and I wanna be here for it. So there's the intrapersonal, there's the interpersonal love, there's the, the loving of the Dharma, but even that is still a kind of duality, me loving the Dharma. So on a deeper level, there's the love that comes when it's not me or Dharma, where it's just life loving itself through this form, where the boundaries and the dualities collapse and there's no separation. And that leads to the, the third non-delusion. And I wanna just mention before we go on that Remember, every moment that you're mindful and it's an unpleasant moment, if you can open up and embrace that, this is planting very powerful seeds of, of love and metta. So non-delusion or wisdom, clarity, every moment that you're here, even if it's a neutral moment and you're very present for it and you're not spaced out or confused where you're honoring this moment of life with your your loving presence is a moment of clarity and wisdom. And what you're seeing through are the delusions that keep us confused, that is taking what's impermanent to be permanent, taking what is suffering to be a a source of happiness, and taking what is essentially selfless as self, that is not seeing a Nietzsche dukkha and anatta. This is delusion. And when we see, everything changes. 
holding on to changing experience is suffering. And we ourselves are that changing experience and there's nothing solid within ourselves that we can point to as being the agent of our lives. But we are that process. As uh, Buckminster Fuller says, we are not nouns, we are verbs. You might just for a moment, just reflect on on that. Maybe go inside and instead of thinking of yourself as a noun, as somebody, something to whom life is happening, seeing yourself as a verb, as a flow of experience in this form and pattern called you that's never been here before, that is unique, but is in constant flux. And just to go one level further to see the um, impersonality of who you are. I wanted to read another passage from Lewis Thomas, the same fellow I read a moment ago. This is from his fabulous book, The Lives of a Cell. He says, a good case can be made for our non-existence as entities We are not made up as we had always supposed of successively enriched packets of our own parts. We are shared, rented, occupied at the interior of our own cells, driving them, providing the oxidative energy that sends us out for the improvement of each shining day, our mitochondria, and in a strict sense, they're not ours. They turn out to be little separate creatures replicating in their own fashion, privately, with their own DNA and RNA quite different from ours. Without them, we would not move a muscle, drum a finger, think a thought. Mitochondria are stable and responsible lodgers, and I choose to trust them. But what of the other little animals similarly established in my cells, sorting and balancing me, clustering me together, my centrioles, basal bodies, and probably a good many other more obscure tiny beings at work inside my cells, each with its own special genome, are as foreign and as essential as aphids and anthills. My cells are no longer the pure line entities I I was raised with. They are ecosystems more complex than Jamaican Bay. I like to think that they work in my interest, that each breath they draw for me. But perhaps it is they who walk through the local park in the early morning, sensing my senses, listening to my music, thinking my thoughts. You are an ecosystem. It's a great way to go through life, actually. You know, it removes a little bit of the blame. Not my fault. It's just, but just to see, life is happening through you, and there's so much more than who you think you are. Uh, Wes Nisker has in his book *Buddha's Nature* this 
amazing fact. In your mouth right now are more living beings than have been humans since the beginning of time. Check that one out. And in your stomach, it's way more. You know, billions and billions of bacteria. So who's you? Where are you to be found in all of that? You know, I'm, I'm doing this meditation. Yes, rather, it's just happening through you. And there's such a freedom in knowing that you're not running the show. You can show up, but you're not running the show. How wonderful that is. Just how relieving that is. All you can do is show up and meet life with as sincere and good a heart as you can and with as much clarity as you can and then you have a, a much better chance at a wise, appropriate response for yourself and for everyone else. And even the awareness that is knowing it all is not your awareness. Can you look at me, if you're looking at me right now, and your eyes are working, can you not see me? Can you turn that off? No. Can you not hear these words if your ears are functioning? No. That awareness is just shining through you. You can't turn it off. You can direct it. You can uh, train it, you can train the heart and the mind, but the awareness and all the functions that are you, that you call you, are just a flow of experience. And that's really what, delu- what non-delusion is about, seeing through this created construct of self. This is uh, a poem by Dana Falls, one of my favorite poets, some of you know. She says, settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell, nothing to do, Nothing to be but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, Waking up to truth. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. 
nothing to run from or run toward, just this breath, awareness knowing itself as embodiment, just this breath, awareness waking up to truth. This is how we can transform suffering into happiness in every moment that we're mindful without grasping at the pleasant, learning to let go and express our generous heart without pushing away the unpleasant, opening to it with a, a friendly, wise, loving heart without being lost in the neutral, seeing clearly both what's happening and seeing clearly what we take to be self is not so. It's just life knowing itself through this form. Well, let's just sit for a moment. So we can end with the sharing of blessings together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.